Well, good morning to those of you who are here in this worship center this morning and to those of you who are joining us online. Uh, it is wonderful to have you be part of this service. Always grateful for the worship time that we share in together. We are continuing as we have been now for many weeks uh, a study in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We come this morning to look at what is taking place in Nehemiah chapter 4. So if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4 as we look at this text together this morning. Up to this point, Nehemiah and God's Old Testament people have been making some really great progress in rebuilding the broken down walls of the city of Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the armies of the Babylonian Empire some 141 years earlier. It's important to remember that for 141 years, God's Old Testament people had been living in disgrace. For 141 years, they had been living in despair. For 141 years, they had been living with discouragement. The evidence of their defeat at the hands of their enemies had been all around them. Every time they got up and every time they went to bed, they would see those broken down walls and they would be reminded that they were a defeated people. But under Nehemiah's leadership, the people had decided and they had determined that they were going to rebuild those broken down walls. They decided that they didn't want to live lives of defeat anymore. They didn't want their enemies to control their lives anymore. They didn't want their future to be like their past. And so in chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah, the people were rebuilding those walls. They were rebuilding their lives and they were making great progress when suddenly... They come under attack from their enemies who were determined to keep them from doing what God had called them to do and to keep them from being what God had called them to be. And what happened, you see, to Nehemiah's and, and God's Old Testament people way back then is what happens to us as God's New Testament people today if we get serious about doing what God has called us to do. If we get serious about being what God has called us to be. That's why the central truth of Nehemiah chapter 4, the, the thesis statement of this chapter is just as true today as it was in Nehemiah's day, and that is this. Whenever you get serious about walking with God, waiting on God, being a witness for God, whether that is with your words or with the demonstration of your life. Whenever you determine you're going to do that, you're going to run into some real and recurring spiritual warfare. Why is that? Well, there is an underlying premise to this story and the story of our lives whenever we determine that we're going to rebuild something for God. You see, whenever anything is broken, 
Whenever anything lies in ruins, whether it's part of your own life, whether it's in your family, your church, your community, or your nation, whenever there is anything that is broken, whenever anything lies in ruins, it says that Satan has taken over that area that lies in ruin and has laid claim to that area of your life. He's laid claim to that area of your family. He's laid claim to that area of your your church or your community or your nation. And you need to understand something, and here's the underlying premise. Satan will not, he will never give up one inch of territory that he has claimed for himself without a fight. He will not give up one inch of territory, whether it's in your life, your family, your relationships, wherever it may be, he's not going to give up one inch of that which he has claimed for himself without a fight. That's why spiritual warfare is real. And here's the inescapable reality that goes along with this underlying premise. If you're a Christian this morning who really desires, I mean, the, the, your, your heartbeat this morning is to rebuild something. If you say, God, I want to be a person who walks with you. I want to be a person who waits on you. God, I want to be a person who witnesses for you with my words and with my life. God, I want to be part of rebuilding something that is broken. If you say that to the Lord and really mean it, you have just put yourself in Satan's crosshairs and you have an enemy. You have an enemy. Now, how many of us want to have an enemy? I don't. We don't want to have enemies, do we? But in this case, church, it goes with the territory. I think I've told you this before, but it it really bears repeating again. As a parent, as my kids were growing up, I'm going to tell you, I really didn't have the time, nor did I have the inclination to worry about other people's kids. You know why? I had enough trouble with my own. I didn't have time to to worry about other people's kids. Well, you need to understand something. Satan is not like that. He leaves his own kids alone. I'm talking about the people who don't know God, who don't care to have a relationship with God, who aren't consumed with the things of God. Satan leaves his kids alone and he spends his time trafficking with God's kids, you and me. That's why spiritual warfare is real. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to the book, The Screwtape Letters, writes and he says, quote, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch and every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Unquote. 
So Satan is not going to sit idly by and watch you or watch me live lives that honor God. He is not going to look the other way, unconcerned, while we try to take territory that he has claimed for himself and reclaim it for the kingdom of God. He's going to fight you and he's going to fight me with everything he's got. Now, there is a verse that is not on your message guide. I should have put it there. That, you know, that's one, of the, that's one of the bad things, I guess, about having to have a message guide in early. You know, I'll just make a confession here. Very rarely am I finished with the message God lays on my heart when I turn that message guide in. I just, he continues to speak to me. And here's a verse I should have put on there that I left out. 1 Peter 5, 8, I want you to listen to it. It says this, be alert. Be constantly on watch. Your, anybody know the next word? Enemy. Your enemy, the devil, is constantly on the prowl. He is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, it gives me no pleasure to tell you this this morning, but you need to understand it. Satan does not just want to discourage you. He does not just want to disillusion you. He does not even just want to defeat you. He wants to devour you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your usefulness to God. He wants to destroy your testimony if he can. He wants to destroy the future God has for your life. And he is always on the prowl. He is always looking for ways to do that, probing for some area of weakness, looking for that lapse of vigilance. And he has a lot of ways to do that. And we looked at some of those last week. I've got them on your message guide again this week. We talked about how Satan uses ridicule and criticism. He will bring people into your life to make fun of you, to mock you for wanting to take a stand for God, for wanting to repair something that's broken in your own life or in your family or in your community. He'll question your intelligence. We looked at a lot of things he'll, he'll do there. Then if that doesn't work, he'll bring organized opposition against you. He'll get more folks coming together to pressure you. He'll bring temptations in front of you. He will work on your mind. We're going to talk about that some next week. And if that doesn't work, he will move to open warfare. He'll bring people and circumstances together to actively oppose you, to do anything that he can. Those are the schemes of Satan. And we spent a lot of time looking at that progression last week in the first 11 verses of Nehemiah chapter 4. Those are the schemes of Satan. But we sure don't want to stop there. I don't want to be accused of one preacher of whom his congregation said, well, he let us down into deep water and he left us there. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And we don't want to keep our focus on, on the schemes of Satan. 
Yes, there are such schemes that Satan uses to defeat us, but praise God, there are resources God makes available to us so that we can be victorious in this battle against our enemy. Aren't you glad? It reminds me of a story of a little girl who was talking to her father. She's probably five or six years old. She was sitting on her father's lap, and she looked up at him, and she said, Daddy, is the devil bigger than I am? And he said, yeah, sweetie, he is. And she said, well, Daddy, is the devil bigger than you are? And her father said, honey, yeah, I'm afraid to say that he is. She sat there and she thought for a little while. And then she said, well, Daddy, is the devil bigger than God? And her father said, no, honey, he's not. And a little smile went across that sweet little young face, and she said, well, you know what? Then I'm not afraid of him. You see, the purpose in understanding the schemes of Satan is not so that you'll be afraid of him. It's so that you'll be prepared for his attacks so that you can use the resources God has made available to you to defeat him. And so here's the first resource, and this is the only thing we're going to look at today. I could probably spend several weeks just on this one thing, but we're going to, we're going to focus on this one thing today. Here's your first resource in your battle against Satan. Remember the Lord. That's it. Remember the Lord. Now you think, well, gosh, preacher, that's a letdown. That wasn't what I was hoping to hear. Listen to me. This is a tremendous resource. And this is what Nehemiah and God's Old Testament people turn to first in their battle with their enemies. Look at verse 14 of Nehemiah chapter 4. This is Nehemiah speaking and he says this. When I saw their fear and they were afraid. When I saw their fear, I rose and I spoke to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people and I said, do not be afraid of them. Watch this. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Let me tell you something funny. I don't mean funny ha-ha. I mean funny tragic. One of the first things and easiest things to forget when we're trying to rebuild something for God, is God. I don't know why that's the case. But we have this amazing tendency to say, you know, I, I, I've got this problem that I'm dealing with. I've got this temptation that I'm trying to overcome. I've got this struggle in my life. I'm, I'm trying to rebuild part of my life or my family or some relationship. And so I've, I've got, the, I, I'm in this battle and I've got to figure out how to deal with this. I've got to figure out how to overcome it. I've got to figure out how I can get victory over it. Well, let me tell you what that kind of thinking does. It, th it takes things completely out of God's hands and puts them squarely in yours. It moves the, moves the whole issue out of the realm of faith, and it brings it into the realm of our own human abilities. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know about you. I only know about me. I know about me that I don't have the ability to deal with all of the things that I have to deal with in this life. 
I don't have the ability to do with all of, do all of the things that God calls me to do. I don't have the ability to deal with all of the attacks of Satan. If you remember back to, to verse 2 of this chapter, when Sanballat and, and all of these other enemies were criticizing and ridiculing the people of God, Sanballat's criticism was partly right. <laughs> he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? They were feeble. They were feeble. They didn't have a lot of power. They didn't have a lot of resources. They didn't have a lot of skills. Most of them did not know one single thing about rebuilding broken down walls, especially massive ones like the ones, the city of Jerusalem. If you remember from chapter 3, we saw that there were jewelers and Perfume makers and department store clerks working on the walls. These, these, these people were feeble. They were trying to do something that was absolutely beyond their ability. But they were doing it. And they had the walls halfway up. Why? Because they remembered that they had a resource that Sanballat and Tobiah and the rest of their enemies did not have. They had a God who was great and awesome. Listen, you should not begin a single day. You should never even get out of the bed. You should never let your feet hit the floor when that alarm clock goes off a single day without reminding yourself of who your God is and what he can do. You don't have a small God. You don't have a limited God. You don't have a God who is confined to some box. You have a God, you serve a God who is great and awesome, and that is really good news because in this life we have to deal with some great and awesome problems. We have to deal with some great and awesome pressures. We have to deal with some great and awesome pain along the way. Nehemiah did. I mean, his problem was the total collapse of a culture. His problem was a society that was in complete chaos. He looked at the city of Jerusalem and he saw something the politicians couldn't fix. He saw something that the judicial system couldn't fix. He saw something that the educators and the social scientists could not fix. It was a great and awesome problem. But you see, Nehemiah knew he had a great and awesome God. So he took his overwhelming situation and he put it in the hands of his overwhelming and and, and all-sufficient God. And that's what we got to do. If we're going to win this battle against Satan... I don't know how many of you might be familiar with the name George Mueller. One of my favorite figures from Christian history, giant of the faith out of the 19th century. A man who God used in great ways to impact England for Christ. Mueller was a man of very meager resources. Yet millions and millions of dollars flowed through his hands to build orphanages 
and children's homes and homeless shelters and all kinds of other ministries. And Mueller never asked for one single penny. God always miraculously provided. Well, during George Mueller's ministry, he, he often made trips from Great Britain to America and to Canada. And on one of those trips that he was on, on a ship, as it was making its way across the Atlantic, that ship found itself in heavy, heavy fog. Back then, they didn't have the kind of navigational capabilities that we have today. And in those heavy fogs, the ship had to stop dead in the water. When Mueller realized that the ship had stopped, he went immediately to the ship's captain. He said, Captain, i got to be in Quebec by Saturday. We need to keep moving. The captain said, Mr. Mueller, I'm sorry, but that's impossible. I, you know, I, I, just, I can't move in this fog. So Mueller said, very well, if, if, if you can't get me there, then, then God's going to have to figure out another, another way to get me there, and he will figure out a, another way to get me there because, you see, I've never broken an engagement in 52 years. Let's you and me go to the chart room, and, and we're going to pray. Well, the captain looked at Mueller like he had been let out of some kind of asylum. And he said to him, he said, Mr. Mueller, I, I've been a ship's captain for a long time. And I've been in a lot of fog. This is the heaviest fog I have personally ever seen. And I got to tell you, we're going to be here a long time. It's going to be hours before this fog lifts. Mueller said, well, Captain, I, I'm sure you've had a lot of experience with your fog. But I've had a lot of experience with my God. And my eyes aren't on that fog. My eyes are on my God who has called me and who controls the circumstances of my life. So Mueller literally pulled that captain to the, to the chart room. And then Mueller got down on his knees to pray. And he prayed a very simple prayer, just asking God to make a way to get him to his destination. He finished his prayer, and when he did, the captain began to pray. But, but Mueller reached out and laid his hand on the captain's shoulders and stopped him and said, Captain, there are two reasons why you don't need to pray. Number one, you really don't believe God will do anything. And number two, I believe he already has. The captain looked amazed, and Mueller went on. He said, you know, I've known the Lord for 52 years, and there's never been a single day in my life when I have failed to gain an audience with the king. So you open that door, and you'll see that this fog has lifted. And it had. Now, you might be thinking right now, Pastor, that's a great story, but I just don't have that kind of faith. Yes, you do. If you're a born-again, blood-bought child of God, yes, you do. I want to remind you that Jesus did not say you needed a mountain-sized faith in order to move a mustard seed. He said all you need is a faith the size of a mustard seed and you can move mountains. You see, the, the, the issue is never the size of your faith. The issue is always the size of your God. And too many of us have a God who is too small. What I mean by that is 
that we, we, we come into a worship service like this and we talk about God and we sing about God and we pray to God on Sunday and we leave here thinking we've accomplished something, but when we get out there, when Monday rolls around, we don't really believe he's sufficient to deal with our pressures and problems and the obstacles in our lives and the attacks of Satan. And so we try to deal with those things ourselves and we end up disillusioned, discouraged, defeated. We've got to learn to do what Nehemiah did. We've got to learn to remember we have a God who is great and awesome and he is on our side. Surely you remember the Old Testament story about the 12 men Moses sent out to spy out the promised land. You remember 10 of those spies came back and they said, oh, let me this, 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 this promised land is great. It's just like God said it was. Incredible, but, but, but we got a problem, you see, because, because they're giants in the land and, and we look like grasshoppers compared to them, so we got, we, we got some bad news for you. We can't do this. The, the opposition is, is too great. The enemy's too strong. But it was Joshua and Caleb who came back and said, you know what, if the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into this land. He's promised it to us. It's part of his plan for us. Don't be afraid. Don't let the enemy win this thing. Keep your eyes on God. He'll fight for us. We can do this. But the majority opinion prevailed. And you remember, God's people never got to the promised land. They spent 40 years cutting circles in the desert. They died there because their eyes were on their enemy, not on their God. Don't do that. Don't measure yourself against the size of your enemy. That will defeat you every time. Measure your enemy against the size of your God. That's when you'll have the faith to step out and do what God's telling you to do. That's when you'll be able to rebuild whatever it is that God is calling you to rebuild. That's when you'll be able to fix whatever it is God's calling you to fix, whether it's in your own life, your family, wherever it is. Very quickly, I want to point out one other verse to you, 2 Corinthians 2, 7, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Contemporary English version reads this way. We live by faith, not by what we see. We live by faith, not by what we see. See, the Christian life brothers and sisters, is a life that must be lived by faith. And having faith means more than just believing God is powerful enough to get you to heaven. It also means believing God is able to lead you and take care of you and enable you and empower you to live victoriously right here on earth. So you live in that reality and you do what God tells you to do and you're obedient to his word, and you're obedient to his will, no matter the opposition, no matter the attacks of Satan. Some of you are thinking, that is so hard. The opposition is so overwhelming. The enemy is so overpowering. Again, preacher, I just don't have that kind of faith. 
You know, you exercise that kind of faith really, you exercise that kind of faith all the time. If you just think about it, when you get sick, let's take this for an example. When you get sick, you go to a doctor whose name you cannot pronounce. He gives you a prescription you cannot read. You take it to a pharmacist you do not know. He gives you a medicine you do not understand, but you take it. Why? Because you have faith that your doctor knows doctoring and your pharmacist knows medicine and those little pills have the ingredients in them that will relieve your symptoms and cure your sickness. You don't understand how any of that works, but you take the medicine, right? That's faith. And you act on that kind of faith all the time. How many, how many of you have ever flown in an airplane? Brother, that's faith. That's faith. People ask me a lot of times if I'm afraid to fly because I fly a lot. I'm slowly closing in on a million miles. I used to fly a lot. I hadn't flown a lot recently. None of us have, I guess. But people ask me if I'm afraid to fly, and I'm not afraid to fly. One of the reasons why I'm not afraid to fly, because other than my faith in God, is my faith in the pilots who are sitting in that cockpit. You know, I, I, I trust this is not their first flight. <laughs> I trust they know what all those dials and switches are for and how to use them. I, I trust that they're not up there saying, hey, let's try this one today, Joe. I, I trust they can understand navigation and they're not saying, you know, I, I think if we, if we point this thing in that direction, Mac, we'll end up in Atlanta. Many, many of us have flown, right? We will let an airplane take us up 30,000 feet in the air with nothing to catch us if we fall out of the sky. We have faith in men. And if we believe men can take us from point A to point B in an airplane, why can't we also believe that the God who gave men the ability to design that plane and build that plane and fly that plane, why can we not also believe that this great and awesome God can take our lives and direct them and get us from where we are to the place he wants us to be when we are totally sold out to him? See, the key to having a faith that steps up and steps out the kind of faith that walks with God, that waits on God, that witnesses for God in spite of the ridicule, in spite of the criticism, in spite of the opposition, in spite of the open warfare by our enemy. The key to walking in victory instead of defeat is to remember the Lord. It is to remember that we have a God who is great and awesome. We don't need a lot of faith in a little God. We just need a little faith in a big God, and I promise you, he'll take care of the rest. 
Doesn't mean it'll be easy. Doesn't mean we won't find ourselves in the middle of a battle. What it does mean is that you can have the victory. And I can have the victory over whatever it is you're struggling with today, whatever your battle is today, whatever attacks of the enemy are confronting you today, you can have the victory. But it all begins with this. Remember the Lord. Do not be afraid of them. You have a God who is great and awesome. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these these moments that you've given us together this morning. And we know there's a whole lot more that we can look at and will look at in this chapter, but really none of the rest of it makes any sense, nor will it help us if this is not our starting point, if this is not our launching pad. If we are not absolutely convinced, rock solid, immovable in our conviction that we have a God who is great and awesome and that He will fight our battles for us. He will make a way where there is no way. He will give us victory in our battle with our adversary. So Lord, I pray that the truth of Nehemiah's words to a people long ago who were attacked and opposed and told they couldn't do the thing God had called them to do, they couldn't be the people God had called them to be. They began to rebuild again. They began to move forward with even greater commitment because they understood that you're a great and awesome God. And so, Lord, at whatever point your New Testament people, your people gathered here today, your people listening in remotely, at whatever point they may be feeling right now today the attacks of the enemy, the schemes of Satan, this one who is constantly on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. May we today, right now, do what your Old Testament people did back then. That is turn to you, remember you, rely on you, place our faith in you and move out in obedience to do what it is you've called us to do in spite of the opposition, in spite of the pressure, in spite of the ridicule and the criticism, in spite of the opposition, the open warfare. We would not let you keep us from reclaiming that territory for God, whether it's in our own lives, our family, our church, our community, this nation, or among the nations, is the prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to join me in standing. We're going to sing this morning, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Have Thine Own Way. If 
you're struggling with something this morning, you're feeling the fires of the attack of the enemy, if I can pray with you and encourage you, I'd be happy to do that. If you want to come to this altar and just lay that burden down before the Lord, please feel free to do that. If this morning you need a church home and a church family, feel like God would be leading you to join your hands and your hearts with what He's doing in this place, we would welcome you. If you don't know Christ, if you're sitting there and you've listened to this message and you're thinking, I don't even know this God who's great and awesome, then you know what? We'd be happy to introduce Him to you. We'd be happy to do that this morning. I'll stay and sit with you as long as we need to between these services and share with you how you can be part of what we've been talking about today. So as we sing this morning, you come as God speaks to your heart.